Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 14th episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the long-term value of human relationships. With me is Art Markman, most recently the author of Bringing Your Brain to Work, Using Cognitive Science to Get a Job, Do It Well, and advance your career. The book is published by Harvard Business Review Press. Art is a professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas at Austin, where he also runs the university's Human Dimensions of Organizations program. Besides his books, Art writes blogs for Psychology Today and Fast Company, and has a radio show podcast called Two Guys on Your Head. Last but not least, Art plays saxophone in a ska band, that is called Phineas Gage. By all means, check them out. Thank you so much for being on today's show, Art. Oh, Dan, it's it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. No, I think we'll have a we'll have a good conversation. So let's just uh, level set for the audience briefly. What's your bringing your brain to work all about? So it one of the things about the workplace is, as you begin to look back on your career, you realize that so much of what made you successful was not something that you learned in a class, but rather other factors that allowed you to succeed. And many of those factors have to do with the way that your mind works, the way that you interact with other people, the way that you motivate yourself to do things. And and a lot of those elements are things that you could learn about. They just happen to be things that we don't teach. And so what I did was to bring my specialty, cognitive science, to bear on trying to organize an understanding of how you get a job, how you hold on to that job and succeed at it, and how you move on to the next one throughout your career through that cognitive science lens. Okay. Well, I, I remember Meryl Streep has a wonderful comment. She said, I thought life would be like college, but it's actually more like high school. <laughs> and, and I would say some days I think it's been more like junior high school. So one of the many things I like about the book is you say when you get to that job interview, obviously you want to convey some information about yourself, but you're also trying to take in information about the organization and whether you really want to be part of their corporate culture. Uh, some years ago, there was a piece, kind of a daunting piece in USA Today. There were seven different kinds of corporate cultures they identified, uh, only 27% of which were positive. So for the person coming in, do you have any best suggestions, good questions to ask, avenues to pursue in that interview to get a sense of what kind of workplace you might be stepping into? Yeah, you know, the first thing to do is actually more than anything else to really pay attention to the way the interview itself goes. So think, for example, about what happens when somebody asks you a question that's deliberately intended to stump you in the interview. Now, a lot of times we treat uh, interviews as if they're like exams, where the onus is on you to excel in the interview. But really, you have to ask yourself, what is a company trying to do if they're starting from the beginning to trip people up? 
And so you want to be paying attention to how is this structured? And if you do, if they do ask you a question where you're not sure what the answer is, well, do they treat that as a teaching moment or, or do they become dismissive at that? Because are, are they expecting that they're only going to hire people who are fully formed and absolutely 100% ready to take on a position or are they treating your career as a pathway for growth? So even in the way that the interview is structured, you can begin to get a feel for how do uh, how does this organization feel like you should you you should be able to adapt and grow. But I also think it's important to ask questions about the degree to which there is training, the degree to which there is opportunity to try to expand the set of skills that you have uh, through the workplace. And, and to really get a feel for the interaction among the, the people who are there and to talk about the events that are available and, and the chances to get to know your colleagues, because all of those influence the, the, the way that your day-to-day life is going to go. And, and it's interesting how later you can often look back, even at the interview, and realize that there was something interesting about the company that, that could have come through at the interview if you'd been paying attention. Sure. Well, you know, uh, Tim O'Neill said all politics is local politics. So I, I have to think there's both what is the corporate culture like and then the specific department that you are, you know, interviewing for a job within. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to the extent that you are interviewing with your future supervisor, you really want to be paying attention to how that person talks about the job, the workplace, their colleagues. You know, it's it's interesting that that there are some people who believe that a way to bond with you is to denigrate some other group or some other individual, uh, and and that can feel in the moment like a, uh, you know, like a like it's building a little camaraderie. But you always have to ask yourself when somebody says something nasty about somebody else, how long is it till they say something nasty about you? Sure. No, I, I would certainly agree with that. Toxicity goes around. Yeah. Um, is it worthwhile sometimes to ask where the person who last held this job, what they progressed on to or why the position's vacant? You know, certainly I think it's worth understanding where the position came from, um, you know, it, it, because it, it, it helps you in a number of ways. Partly it's useful to know whether people are being promoted upward and so vacancies are being created that way. It's also useful to understand whether the company's growing. So, so if, if a position has been created because this is simply a, a growth period for that that organization, which may be less true in the in the era of the pandemic, but there certainly have been winners and losers even uh, even lo- even in the the current environment. Yeah, and if you found out there was five people who cycled through this position in the last two years, that would not be a great thing. Which sort of brings me to my next question. You mentioned in the book, and I think this is a really good point, um, you're going to have some supervisors who sometimes are wonderful looking out for your career, how it's going to grow. But what do you do if you come to realize you've taken a job with a supervisor who doesn't have your best interests at heart? Yeah, you know, that's it's such a difficult situation to navigate because uh, particularly early in your career where you may not have a lot of other resources to figure out how to uh, to address that. You know, I, I think one of the things that, that you want to do is is really to to do you know to do as much as you can to excel in your position because you you, you are going to want to make sure that you uh, that you cast a good impression that other people can see. 
because I think that's going to be important. You know, I think it's important to develop other allies within the organization so that you are getting good feedback about how to improve your performance, even if your own supervisor isn't necessarily providing that. And quite frankly, you know, if, if you're in a situation in which you, you have a really bad boss, then you, you should be looking for other kinds of opportunities. I think a lot of times people, people don't really take the opportunity to think about their own career and ask themselves, you know, should I be uh, looking for a, a way to, to move to a place that, is, that might be more uh, supportive. You know, I, I think we, we watch enough TV shows with bad bosses to think that that's the norm. And it need not be, right? A lot of organizations actually are quite supportive and are looking out for you. And just because you happen to be stuck in a bad situation doesn't mean that you actually have to tolerate that. Yeah, no, I've had wonderful bosses and not so great bosses. And I have to confess that one of the not so great bosses uh, pretty much demoralized the entire department. And I came to realize that the day that the secretary, who's just the sweetest person, called me over and said, did you hear the latest joke about Linda, which was she's gone on vacation to write a new introduction to Mein Kampf. Uh, it, it was actually that bad. There was, oh after goodness. I left, I think there was three or maybe five lawsuits involving this boss. Yeah. yeah. So, tough news. Anyway, let's go on to happier topics. You were talking about, um, at one point in the book, Shalom Schwartz has a model on 10 universal values and maybe trying to get a peg of a culture by thinking about which of those values is most central to the, the company or, or firm, whatever it might be, um, profit company, yeah. organization. Um, are there, you know, in your experience, because you also do consulting work and you run this Human Dimensions of Organizations uh, program, are there some companies that really stand out for a value that really helps to define them and why they're great? And maybe a cautionary tale where there's some trait that or, or value rather that maybe got them into a bit of trouble. Yeah, well, you know, so it's it's interesting. I mean, I think the values themselves um, are ethically neutral in the sense yeah. that that you can you can you can be a great company and uh, and have very different kinds of values. So so let me give you an example. Um, if you think about the value of achievement, the the value of achievement is is one that says I as an individual or we as a company value being recognized for advancement, for being excellent. And, and that can be a wonderful thing, right? I think a lot of you know, great Research One universities, for example, pride themselves on that value of achievement, that they, that they want to be known for the prowess, the research prowess, and the teaching prowess of their faculty, and they support that. And, and, and I think they, they also then attract people who have that as a value. And in fact, the people who are a mismatch to that kind of institution are people who might value something else. If you, if you value doing pleasurable things in the moment, or if you value uh, long-term stability, then, then maybe uh, taking an initial job at a, at, a, at a competitive university may not be a great idea for you. It's a mismatch in values. That said, Simply wanting to be known for achievement doesn't necessarily create a great culture in an organization. And so if you think about, you know, even companies like Enron that wanted to be, I mean, the, the documentary about Enron was called The Smartest Guys in the Room. And what they wanted to be known for was being great, but they didn't necessarily 
always want to put the work in to do things that would lay the foundation for that greatness. And so there's the very same value achievement actually being used as a positive or a negative. No, no, I like that answer. That's that's a much more nuanced way to look at it, and I think totally appropriate. Um, I, I can tell from your book that we're both big fans of the big five traits model. That's sometimes called ocean for mm-hmm. openness to experience and extroversion and agreeableness and uh, neuroticism, which is sometimes simply called uh, emotional stability. Are there in your research, and I didn't find it in the book, but it might be just your own uh, reflections on it. Is there anything that kind of suggests which emotions might go with which traits? I'm sure it's not a fixed schema by any means, but just from your own experience or musings on it, does yeah. it seem to be certain fixed fits that uh, make sense? Yeah, yeah. So if we think about the relationship between personality and emotion, uh, I'm going to break it down a little bit more. The thing about the big five personality characteristics is that they are reflections of your underlying default motivational states. So these are, you know, what it is that you as an individual tend to be motivated by, and there are individual differences between people, and those are reflected in personality. The reason I'm framing it that way is because a lot of our emotional experience arises out of our successes and failures at trying to achieve the goals that our motivational system is engaged. And so there's this relationship between those default motivations and your emotions based on whether you are able to succeed at the things that you want to do. So let me, let me give you a few then examples of how that plays out. So the C in ocean is conscientiousness, which refers to um, how much do I like to and need to get things done. And, and often for people who are highly conscientious, that is experienced as a set of responsibilities that you have. To, and, and that you feel the responsibility to complete a set of tasks. When you have a responsibility, one of the things that that means motivationally is that you frame the world in terms of avoiding problems. So if I don't finish this task, then something bad is going to happen. And as a result, highly conscientious people tend to experience a lot of anxiety about how things are going and concern and stress over whether something's going to get done. Whereas people who are lower in conscientiousness are going to experience less of that stress because they don't fear that if they don't complete something that, uh, that something's going to go wrong. If we think about the openness to experience dimension, people who are very open to experience tend to, tend to see things with a lot of anticipation and excitement because they view new things as opportunities for some potential great thing to happen. And so they end up experiencing a lot of positive emotions from that. Being more close to experience may actually then create a certain amount of anxiety or stress because you're worried about what might happen in, uh, in new situations. And, then, and does that happiness tie into, in the case of openness, are they geared towards surprise, looking for surprises, welcoming surprises? Yeah, I think, I think they're, they're certainly, they're, they're, they're really looking for not just surprises, but just, but just um, they, they, they find those new experiences pleasurable. Uh, whereas, whereas I think the people who are close to experience, they, they, they are just relieved when they get to the end of a new experience and nothing went wrong. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, and then one other that's interesting is is there there's always been a very strong link between neuroticism and and these kinds of 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 anxious or or stressful emotions. So I think that you know uh, neuroticism and, and emotional stability reflect more than anything else how much energy flows through that motivational system. And certainly in the workplace, because there are a lot of unknowns and a lot of potential stressors, that often manifests itself as having a lot of energy that gets devoted to worry and concern and, and sometimes even anger when things don't go well. And so, you know, it's, it's tough if you find yourself as, as somebody who is on the uh, more on that emotionally unstable or neurotic end of things. One of the things you have to do is to learn to control that energy, channel it into positive things, and, and really develop strategies not to worry about things when the worry isn't really going to do you any good. So, so would it be fair to say that since both conscientiousness and neuroticism involve anxiety, then in the case of conscientiousness, that anxiety is more applied to the task in the uh, case of the more neurotic person, it's more to themselves or the situation. It's it's it it well really with 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 the more neurotic individual, it's it's that it is applied to whatever it is that happens to be motivating you right now, and so okay. you get into whatever it is. If it's a great thing, you're very excited. If it's a if it's a, a bad situation, you're very fearful. You know, and, and a little bit of, of that energy actually is, is really beneficial. As I like to point out, uh, a, a, a really emotionally stable football coach does not give a particularly good halftime speech. You know, <laughs> they're like, okay, team, let's go. And that's, that's really not very infectious. Sure. Well, that brings me then, if you don't mind, to extroversion, which we didn't touch on yet. Uh, I would say a lot of football coaches are likely to be extroverts. Uh, what emotions might go with that trait, just possibly? Yeah, so you know, extroverts really in, in love to engage in those kinds of big social interactions in which in which there's a group of people, and so they're drawing that energy from that situation. and And I think that that there there can be a tremendous amount of joy and satisfaction that come along with being part of a group that is making progress and being you know, and, and being a central part of that group. Uh, whereas introverts, it's not introverts aren't hermits, but they, they would prefer not to have that spotlight of attention shown on them. And so they, they like to work at the periphery and, 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 and really engage in, in smaller group interactions. But of course, you know, what's interesting is that the extroverts right now uh, in the age of social distancing Many extroverts have found this a little bit difficult. It's hard to be the center of attention in a group when there's no groups. <laughs> True enough. I, and since we just have one left, agreeableness, does yeah. that fit back to happiness or are we going to go some other place with that one? You know, agreeableness is an interesting trait, uh, you know, because the word agreeable is a very positive word. So we tend to think, well, being agreeable, that's great. Being disagreeable, that's a problem. But the real motivation underlying agreeableness is how much uh, from a motivational standpoint do you really need to be liked by other people? And and so certainly if you're an agreeable person and you've managed to find a way to get along with the people around you, it gives you a tremendous amount of happiness and satisfaction. But if you find yourself in an organizational context having to give criticism to someone, that can actually be quite uncomfortable. And, and in fact, uh, very agreeable people who are in leadership roles often have difficulty 
giving negative feedback to the people who are working for them. And they, they can find that very anxiety provoking and often need to develop strategies to do that. And, and there's some interesting data points. Uh, one of my favorites relating to agreeableness is that agreeable people make less money overall than disagreeable people do. And, and that's because they don't really advocate enough for themselves. And whereas disagreeable people who don't particularly care whether you like them or not are happy to ask for a raise or happy to ask for a new position. They're not fearful that that request might make you like them a little bit less in the moment. And interestingly, disagreeable people are almost also more likely to get fired than agreeable people, but they make more money even when you control for that, because when they get that next job, they advocate strongly for themselves. For themselves. Okay. Yeah. Um, interesting stuff. I, I brought it up in part because you have another section of the book where you're talking about, you know, assembling a good team, maybe a, a dream team, as it were. And you had the following people. And in most cases, you had a a trait that tended to go with them. So you said a team should have a, a visionary person who quite likely is going to be open to experiences. Uh, you want the taskmaster who's conscientious. Uh, you wanted someone who communicates effects effectively, which is your extrovert. Uh, you said you wanted two probably generalists uh, who, again, would be open to experience. And then interesting, two other things. One is you said that you want two people low in agreeableness. So that's going to be part of my question here. And the other ones you mentioned wanting someone who had domain expertise, and that's the one instance where no trait was assigned. Yeah. So from both the domain expertise point of view and why exactly you want not just one, but two people low in agreeableness to form your dream team. I'd, I'd be yeah. curious for your thoughts. Yeah. So let's, let's start with our disagreeable folks. And, you know, one of the things that's really important in any healthy functioning organization is dissent. Uh, and you, you need people who are willing to say, you know what, I don't think we're going in the right direction. I, I disagree with this course of action. And uh, if you only have one of them, then the danger is that, that they might be disagreeable. They might be willing to criticize, but they happen to, to agree with you on this particular point. So it's useful to have a couple of people so that you've always got somebody who is likely to find some flaw in what you're trying to do right now, because it is those people who force you to really uh, look at your assumptions carefully and, and, and justify the courses of action that can make you understand better some of the obstacles you may face before you reach a problem. So, so I think it's important to have a few people around who do that. And then with respect to the, the person who has domain expertise, you know, one of, the, one of the things about modern business, you know, the fact that we have uh, uh, MBA programs suggests that there's a thing called management that can be done independently of what the organization itself does. And, and I think that, that one of the things we have to recognize is that success in most domains requires a certain amount of ability to navigate organizations in general and to set things up in the right way. But, Absolutely. But, but honestly, it requires an awful lot of ability to, to understand what's going on in the organization specifically. And I think, I think a lot of times we undervalue that domain expertise. It's really important to make sure that we have some people around who are really deeply experts in what's going on. And you know, the rest of their characteristics don't matter so much because you can always fill that in with other members of the team. But, but if, you, if you're really lacking folks, 
who have that great domain expertise, then you you may end up driving yourself off a cliff because you you don't realize some subtlety uh, of the domain that that really should have been present during the planning process. Okay, well that helps. So in other words, just going circling back to the agreeableness thing, really there, there's a wonderful quote. Someone said that uh, if everyone thinks alike, no one is thinking. Right. So the the point there is you'd need someone who can push back and expose the potential flaws and come out with a better. Yeah, I mean, the agreeable people are people who may find flaws, but they don't want to point them out because sure. because you seem so happy right now with your <laughs> idea. I don't I don't want to rain on your parade. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Fair enough. Um, so speaking of raining on parades, um, you have an interesting comment at one point. I think it's in the summary of a chapter. You said, uh, as a manager, punish negligence, not failure. Uh, so my question is, you do indeed need to punish negligence. What's the best way to handle that? And perhaps you have a few comments you want to make regarding the difference between negligence and failure. Yeah, I think it's important to start with that. So so a lot of times we, we have a nasty tendency to focus on the outcome of something rather than the process by which we got there. And, and outcomes are, are an unreliable gauge to how well somebody actually performed. Because you know, obviously to succeed at something requires some perseverance and some skill and things like that. But, you know, frankly, as we all know, it requires a certain amount of dumb luck too. Uh, there, <laughs> there are plenty of times sure. where you've done everything right and, and didn't succeed because things out of your control uh, caused a problem. And, and this is particularly true when you're trying to do something that's somewhat risky, perhaps because it's a, a, a novel thing. You know, you're swinging for the fences, trying something very innovative. And so if we, if we focus primarily on failure, then we are, we are conflating uh, and, uh, you know, the, the effort that was put in, the procedure you went through, and all of these other factors that drive success. And so what's really important is to ask the question, how did this person do? Did they engage with all of the procedures that we think of as best practices? Did they come to work prepared every day? Did they engage with people in the right way? And if, if, if somebody in the workplace is really doing all of the right things, that's actually something to be rewarded, even if the outcome wasn't what we wanted, because now you've learned something valuable. Uh, and and of course, the other thing to say is some some uh, things are mistakes, not negligence. If I if I you know we all have our bad days, we all blow it every now and again. If I make a, <laughs> if course. I make an error, and then and then admit to that mistake, work to fix it. I haven't been negligent. I've been human. And and you know you don't and even if that mistake had big consequences, you don't necessarily want to punish that person. I mean, if you fired somebody who uh, maybe you lost a client over, over, over a big error, but that person recognized their mistake, apologized for it, and really made took steps to make sure that wasn't going to happen again. If you fire them anyhow, you've just gotten rid of the one person you're guaranteed is never going to make that mistake again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as you're giving this answer, I, I couldn't help but think I had a friend who uh, got his PhD at MIT but it took a little bit longer to get the dissertation done because he was given a formula by the professor. He worked dutifully with it for, I think, more than a year. The experiments were just not turning out and finally came back to the professor and said, I think the maybe, just maybe, is there a problem with the formula you gave me? And the professor then admitted that 
you know, he had never really checked it out. He just kind of handed it off. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not quite sure how they resolved <laughs> that. But finally, Bob moved forward and got his degree and uh, so on and so forth. Um, another interesting point when you're talking about leaders and the culture and so forth is trying to foster innovation. Uh, because it's not easy. There is ROI, you know, especially in the short-term mentality these days of, you know, stock market performance and so forth. How can you set the the rewards and the structure in your experience, both in, in running your, your program uh, and in the consulting work you've done? What have you seen that's really successful in setting up a good foundation for being innovative? Yeah. So one of the big difficulties, particularly in organizations, is that that, that real innovation is risky. Uh, you you are you are if you're really truly swinging for the fences on something you you may invest a lot of of time effort and money into something that may or may not work out and if you never swing for the fences then you you run the risk that that other people will do things that ultimately disrupt your ability to keep to keep making money the way you were before so that's the the paradox and the problem is that that a lot of organizations when they set up their reward structures for everyone. Uh, for example, managers will get a bonus at the end of the year on the basis of, of the performance of their unit at the end of the year. And the, the problem with that is that if you support some number of innovations, you are spending resources that may not pay off until much later. And so you actually take a hit for really trying to support an innovation that and 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 so as a result, you often see companies where company wide they would like to have a higher proportion of innovative projects being pursued than you actually see happening at the individual unit level. And one of the things that can be really valuable to do there is actually to create a, a pool that is a, a, a almost like an insurance pool where if you support an innovative project, you are eligible to participate in that pool. And what that means is that if any innovation across the company hits, then a certain amount of, of, of the process, profits or proceeds from that innovation will go into the pool and then be shared uh, across the, the variety of people who bought into that. And it's a way of enticing people to support things that might not be in the best interests of their unit, but probably are in the best interests of the organization overall. I think that's one thing that has to be done. I think another thing that has to be done too, though, is really to assure people that it is the participation in the innovation process that is is valued and not necessarily the success of a particular innovation. And you know what's interesting is if, if there, there's a, a great book by Annalise Saxanian called Regional Advantage that looks at the difference between Silicon Valley and, and the Boston 128 corridor on the East Coast which back in the 1940s were, uh, if you had to guess where the innovation hub of the United States was going to be, you would have guessed it would be Boston because of, of the universities there and the companies that existed. But if you fast forward to the 21st century, we, we, have a, you know, we think of Silicon Valley as being one of those huge hubs of innovation in the U.S. One of the reasons for that, though, seems to be that on the East Coast, a lot of the big firms that were there, places like Raytheon and IBM, uh, when they, when when somebody in management had a project that failed there, they tended to be uh, marginalized, shunted off to projects that that weren't that important anymore. Whereas in the on the West Coast, people who who had a company that they formed and that that company failed uh, were then brought into the next company. It was almost a badge of honor that you had 
that you had been with a startup that went that went under. So, you know, that difference in orientation towards innovation really, I think, led to a difference in ultimate success in in creating innovations time and again. Yeah, no, I I like that because obviously the hedge funds, you know, and everyone else who's putting in investment dollars on the West Coast in Silicon Valley, they know that a lot of those aren't going to work. They're looking for the ones that might work. And I've heard it said that if your your launch goes perfectly, you waited too long yeah. because you should have been prepared to go out and recognize that you're going to have to learn still in the process yeah. and not just expect that it's going to be perfectly safe because that's the very nature of it, not to be safe. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I, I had a colleague years ago um, who who was uh, not successful in getting tenure. And and I knew this person was going to have a problem when they said something like, uh, I've never I've never submitted a paper that wasn't accepted. I thought, yeah, you're not, you're not really pushing the envelope then. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in terms of evaluating people, you, you make a nice comment because, you know, office politics is, is its own animal. And you said you have to recognize how people are going to evaluate you, uh, you know, when you join a department, for instance, do you have a couple of things you can offer listeners as to what those yardsticks for how people are going to evaluate you might be and how you should respond accordingly? Yeah, I think, that, you know, there's several things. And of course, the, the evaluations that people are going to make of you depend a little bit on, on which, which phase of your engagement with a, an organization you're in. You know, running all the way from when you first apply to an organization, you have to be sure, you have to recognize that hiring managers are initially in the business of rejecting lots of applications until they get to, uh, to the end, and then they start looking to accept them. And so you have to make sure that you don't give anybody any e- easy reason to reject you. So you're, you're dealing with this idea of understanding what, how other people are evaluating you from the very beginning. But I think one of the other things that's really important is that, is that people want to work with other people who they feel like they can engage with. And so it's, it's really important to, to create a, a way of, 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 engaging with other people that is open to the perspectives that they're taking and that is open to really pushing projects forward and being constructive in the things that you do. And being constructive is is a very hard thing to do. I think a lot of people want to feel smart by tearing down the ideas of other people and by criticizing. The really hard thing to do in life is to figure out how to how to find what is deeply right about somebody else's idea and to help to nurture that rather than to find all the reasons why something is going to go wrong. There's, a, there's an old saying in academia that you know when, when people write scientific papers, those papers get sent out for review to, to peers. And, and the, the saying is that if you want to guarantee that a paper is going to get rejected, you send it to three graduate students to review. Because as a young uh, academic, you're, you're constantly just finding fault in everything. And it's the sign of maturity is, is when you're able not just to find the flaws in something, but to find what's really beautiful in an idea somebody's had, and then to use that to, uh, to, to, to create a constructive way of moving forward. And I think that those people who interact with others in the workplace by finding what is right about some, what someone said and helping them to shape projects so that the, the the really right stuff actually comes through are the ones who ultimately have a tremendous amount of success. 
No, that makes a lot of sense to me. You need to be upbeat, but uh, you know you can't exactly be toothless either. You do have to have right. some critical aptitude. It reminds me of you know writing a book. We're both authors. Um, I mean, you get up in the morning, you look at what you wrote yesterday, and it may <laughs> not be everything you hoped it was, uh, but you can't entirely despair because nothing will get done. And yet, you do have to use some critical faculties as well. Yeah, quite obviously. yeah absolutely. So um, before we wrap up here, I wanted to go to one last, maybe more personal question. You make a good point in the book, which I, I endorse heartily, that you want to keep growing as a person. There's an old Bob Dylan quote, he who is not busy being born is busy dying. So uh, we both love music, and that's one of my favorites. So um, in terms of accomplishments in life, are there things that you haven't been able to find the time to get to yet, or they've just lately emerged on your radar screen? Where where is art going next? <laughs> you know, I'm 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 always looking for for new challenges, and and I think you know for me it's always been, um, you know, I like to plan what might happen, but also to be to really be open to possibilities. So, for example, for the past several months, it's been a real learning experience for me. the The University of Texas asked me to lead the process of planning the academic uh, uh, component of of our semester. Uh, in the age of the coronavirus, and so you know, as 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 you you know, many universities are struggling with you know to what degree are we open, to what degree are we online, and uh, and 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 how do we navigate the complexities of keeping people safe while also providing a good education and research environment for uh, for the university, and that's given me an opportunity to engage with high level university administrators and to. And to work across the university, and it's just been this tremendous challenge, and and it's been been an exciting thing to do. And and to me, more than anything else, it's it's you know I I, I don't even know all of the things that I haven't learned yet that that I that that will be interesting to learn. But but I do know when an interesting opportunity confronts me. And you know I I've been telling people that that about three months ago I learned this valuable lesson that when the provost of your university texts you at five o'clock on a Saturday and says, can you talk that your life hasn't just gotten easier? And, uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, to me, I, I, I think I, I treat those as, as exciting opportunities. When somebody comes and says, can you do this thing that you've never done, but we think maybe you could do it. Uh, that's the time to dig in and say, you know what, I will figure out whatever other skills I need and I think that's that's actually to me ties into to, to, to something that that I, I believe deeply and put it in the book. You know, it's it's you're never a hundred percent prepared for the next thing you're going to take on, and and yeah. you yeah. can't wait until you are. And and I tell a story in the book actually about my oldest son who was was offered a job uh, that 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 he that when they offered him the job they said, listen, you know, he he had applied for a job he didn't get the one he wanted. He called them back and said, what what. I just want to get some feedback on my interview. And they said, listen, you know, your interview was great. We just had somebody else who was good for the job, but this other position came up. Um, are you, are, you know, you're, you're not qualified for it, but, but would you like it? And he called me, he said, dad, what do I do? And I said, take it. I said, <laughs> yeah. I said, I said if, if you're completely prepared for any job, then you aim too low. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I joined corporate life, the person who hired me, who was you know very supportive, said, "I know you're going to be really good at this job. Just don't tell anyone you don't have any experience in it." Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we got along very well. So our time is about up. Uh, I thank you very much for being my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number fourteen. 
the long-term value of human relationships with my guest, Art Markman. He is the author of numerous books, including most recently, Bringing Your Brain to Work. To check out other episodes or my books or other activities, including my appearances on other people's podcasts, feel free to visit my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com, as in your five senses. Or if you've got a follow-up question for Art, uh, feel free to email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you enjoyed the show, uh, by all means, give a five-star rating or whatever feels right uh, on iTunes. That's always gratefully received. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. As we've been talking in no small part about office politics and ideally handling it well, I'm going to end with a comment or a statement by Abraham Lincoln, who posed this question. Am I not destroying my enemies when I make friends of them? Until next time, be kind and stay safe.